Our guest today, Professor Evan Korth, has worn a lot of hats in the tech space, including developer, investor, advisor, expert witness, board member, and of course, professor. But he didn't start in tech, at least not on paper, having earned a bachelor's in accounting from my alma mater, Syracuse University, and then working as an internal control and systems coordinator, sports agent, yes, you heard that right, sports agent, and VP of operations for Bruce Levy Associates, a sports agency. After working there for eight years, during which he went back to NYU to get his computer science degree, Evan landed his first job as a developer and started teaching computer science at New York University, or NYU as many of you know it. Over the years, he's worked for venture capital firms, started two tech nonprofits, and sat on the boards of several for-profit and nonprofit companies. These days, he continues to teach at NYU and runs a tech consultancy firm named TechGrok. Please stay with us as we sync up with Professor Evan Korth and hear how this one-time accounting major and sports agent built a career in computer science. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Evan, welcome to the show. So great to have you here. Hey, Grant. Thanks for having me. Now, I trust you're doing okay. You, I believe you're, because you teach up at NYU, I believe you're, you're living up in New York City, I assume, as well. That's right? Oh, I've been a New York City resident for 26 years, but a week before they shut down New York, uh, moved up to Woodstock, New York, and uh, looking forward to my return to New York City. But right now, I'm a full-time resident in Woodstock. Uh, well, that's a fantastic place to be. I, I lived upstate in Syracuse for 10 years, and I've visited that area quite a few times. So it's just gorgeous, especially this time of year, I imagine. Absolutely. My family and I were just on a hike, a giant ledge this weekend, and foliage is just maybe a week away from peak. Yeah, fantastic. I do encourage all of our listeners, uh, if you can get a chance, go go visit, although don't trample everything by by going there. But uh, it is it is a beautiful area. Well, Evan, I'd, I'd love to, you know, kick things off. And before we get into that transition to computer science, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that background, you know, getting that accounting degree and that first job at uh, Bruce Levy Associates. Sure. If we're going to talk about my tech career, though, it starts a little bit earlier than that. When I was 11, and this is quite some time ago, this is in the 80s, I got into video games. And this is before the PC, actually. And I wanted a computer so I could play video games. And my parents didn't really want to buy me a computer at that point. So I lied about my age, and I got myself a paper route at 11 years old. I was supposed to be 12, and I took a big route because I wanted to buy uh, a good computer. And uh, after a couple of months, I saved enough money, and I bought my first computer. It was a TRS-80 Model 3, 16K of RAM, and uh, no hard drive, no floppy drive. I couldn't afford that. 
Uh, it just had a cassette player. And I wrote my first programs on that machine, including a Space Invaders, which I wish I could see because I, it's probably the best program I've ever written in my life, but I haven't been able to get at the source code. But anyway, like uh, you know, most kids, I, I, I didn't stay focused on that starting at 11. And I lost my way temporarily in technology and uh, ended up majoring in accounting in Syracuse because I was good with numbers and seemed like a good thing to do. Uh, but I never for a day did accounting. When I, when I graduated from college, I got this job at a sports agency and I was doing a lot of internal things. And I noticed uh, at some point, maybe a year or two in, that even for problems in a sports agency, I found myself writing programs to solve the problems. One thing I remember very specifically, which might have been the moment where I decided to go to grad school, to put this in perspective, this is like 1992. We had a $3,000 a month phone bill because we were sending female basketball players all over the world prior to the WNBA. And I wanted to reduce our phone bill. So I wrote a program to analyze our phone bills. And things were getting exciting with the internet. The World Wide Web hadn't been launched yet, but it just was much more interesting than sports to me. And uh, I started grad school. Had you learned programming in college? I mean, I know you, you mentioned you learned a little bit back on the Trash 80, as it was called way back in the day. But had you taken some classes while at Syracuse in it, or were you all self-taught at this point? I didn't take programming at Syracuse. I definitely was in the labs working on accounting. I don't remember exactly. I know it was Lotus 1, 2, 3. I don't remember exactly. I think it had templates that we were mo modifying for uh, accounting assignments. So I did go to the computer lab and I might've written a few small programs, but I didn't take any, any programming classes. Yeah. Well, so now you're at Levy Associates, you're writing code, you're, you're analyzing this stuff, but sports agent, I mean, I get like you're working in the operations behind the scenes. Like, did you get pulled into a few deals or how did you actually have that bit? Because I think that was maybe just for a year or so. Again, because I was the most computer literate person there, I had written some temp word templates basically to do our contracts. And I ended up getting involved in negotiating some deals. You know, Again, pre-World Wide Web, I had this opportunity to be doing deals all over the world. So I've always been business inclined. Technology isn't my only, only interest. I ended up, you know, it was great experience because I was negotiating deals. I'd be screaming at an Italian team one minute, and then I'd hang up the phone and be very polite with a Japanese team the next minute. You know, it was, it was great fun. Uh, I learned a lot about cultures. And again, that's available to young people these days, but it wasn't uh, so easy to get an opportunity to deal with so many different cultures when I was a younger person. Yeah, that's fantastical. And I imagine too, you know, you, you know, at least for me being a sports junkie, there's always a little bit of that. Oh, that could be fun. Even though I was never good enough to play pro, I could see that it'd be a lot of fun just being around and in sports a lot. So, you know, it's funny. I was never much of a sports fan or an athlete. And I think that's why I was good at doing the deals because I wasn't emotionally attached to any of the teams at the time. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, so I, and I think while at in this job, that's when you decided to also then go back. You've got, you know, it sounds like you're starting to program. Is this about when you go and get your degree in computer science? Kind of walk me through this this transition now that that led you to be like, okay, I'm going to go for this full time and and work as a programmer and developer and professor. I think I went to school for the knowledge, not necessarily to become a developer and a professor, definitely not to become a professor. I'll talk about that in a minute. I went back to school because I wanted the knowledge. I thought machines were cool and I wanted to become more of a master of them. And, you know, it took me a long time. I took one class a semester for six or seven years. So I was mostly working, going to school at night. But the good part of that is it lets you really focus on each topic. So, you know, those were definitely years that I was very busy, but it was also, you know, intellectually rewarding. Yeah. So basically you were working all day for Bruce Levy and then taking night classes and or fitting that into your schedule whenever and studying nights and weekends. Precisely. Spending a lot of time in in the NYU library reading uh, computer science books. You know, so you finally graduate, you got a computer science degree, and this is, I'm assuming then when you leave, like, what was your thought process around what did you want to do with your career at that, this point? You mentioned you definitely didn't want to be a professor and you weren't sure about being a developer, yet, you know, you pretty quickly went and did both of those. So walk me through that transition away from Bruce Levy and into the computer science world. I guess this is part of my story that's probably a bit unique. Because as I said, when I started grad school, there was no World Wide Web. When I finished grad school, the bubble was soon to pop. So I, I continued to be a sports agent through the entire internet bubble. And then the perfect timing that I had, I joined pretty much in May 2000. I joined a company called Afternick.com. So the bubble had already started to deflate. And uh, I mean, fortunately for me, we ended up still having a successful outcome. We were sold to a company called Register.com, which was a public company back then. Um, so I got to go through the whole acquisition process literally two months after I joined full time. I had been working there part time because in the fall semester of my last year, I took a course where we basically built software for that that company. And I just, I stayed part-time until I graduated. I had left the sports agency around the same time, started teaching around the same time, and then went full-time in May, and we sold the company in August. Of course, the, the internet bubble continued to pop after that. As far as the teaching is concerned, I had a fear of public speaking. And when I was offered the opportunity to teach a course in 1999 at NYU, I thought, wow, what a great opportunity to get over my fear of public speaking. I get to talk about something I know really well, so I'd have the confidence to speak about it, to undergraduates who wanted that knowledge and, and didn't intimidate me, and have be forced to do it twice a week. I thought this was great. So I took on the course. Interestingly, in 1999, NYU was still teaching Pascal, so I didn't know it as well. But, you know, it was still a baby programming course. So I was about a week ahead of the students in the book. And uh, I actually completely fell in love with teaching. And I haven't left NYU since. I, st I went full to moved to full time in 2003. Yeah, wow, that's fantastic. Well, and, you know, as I understand, I've, I've worked in, in academia. I worked at Syracuse, actually, for a few years after. And it's not all that common for you to, like, graduate from a place and then go work for that same university. How did that actually come about? I'm kind of curious as to what was underneath all of that. 
There are quite a few members of our faculty who have graduated from NYU on the teaching faculty side. So I'm a clinical professor, which means I teach and I'm not required to do research. I've done a handful of research in computer science education, but I don't do highly technical computer science research. Like I said, I started as an adjunct. And then in 2003, we had a lot of adjuncts prior to that. We decided, the department, it wasn't we at the time, decided they wanted uh, full-time faculty members that would be there to mentor students quite a bit. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones that got one of the full-time jobs. Uh, interesting. Take a moment real quick for our listeners and explain like these three different tracks, if you will, as I understand it. Uh, and perhaps there's more that I'm missing, but there's adjunct, which is basically the precursor to the clinical. And then there's the tenure track, you know, the ones doing research. Is that the right nuance or subtlety there? I would say it like this. An adjunct is a part-time professor. Uh, at NYU, we have three tracks. There's the traditional tenure track uh, faculty member, which is uh, someone who does research and teaches. There's the research professor who is likely on soft money that is just there to do research and doesn't have teaching responsibilities. And there's a the clinical track, uh, which is the one that I'm on, where your primary responsibility is teaching. Uh, interesting. But then you're still allowed to, and we'll get to it here in a minute, but you're you're allowed to then consult on the side or have kind of some of these other things because like sprinkled throughout all of your career then is all of these other things, which, uh, you know, is really kind of my next question here is you've held down a number of these other jobs throughout your career. You know, you've been advisor, chief scientist, and well, investor's not really a job per se, but I'm curious, you know, I mean, it is and it isn't, but you know what I mean? I mean, I'm curious as to like, how do all of these tie together? How do you think about these inflection points throughout your career? So everything on that list with one and a half exceptions has been a part-time uh, responsibility. So, you know, I would occasionally take an expert witness case and, you know, work maybe one day a week on that. When we started Hack and Why in 2010, that certainly wasn't a, a full-time gig. The one time I did take a temporary leave from NYU was to co-found CSNYC with Fred Wilson. And I worked as executive director for the first three years of that organization. So that one required my full-time attention. So that's the only time I've actually taken the leave from it. And so you've been full-time as the professor throughout all of this and then working on these other part-time to scratch that business itch, perhaps, as you mentioned earlier. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, fantastic. Well, so, you know, you founded actually two nonprofits. Uh, I didn't get, you know, you mentioned the, the acronym there. I think is is it it's the NYC Foundation for Computer Science Education. Is that the CSN? <laughs> I mean, I'm not yes, even remembering. Yes, yes, it, it it's quite confusing, and it has been since we launched. Uh, and then you have Hack NY as well. Well, tell me about what each of these nonprofits do, and and what inspired you to actually go that route. When I went full time in 2003, it was the height of the dark days of the New York City startup ecosystem, as I like to call it. So after the internet bubble popped, you know, the dominant story in the media was all of our jobs are being outsourced. Parents got this message that they shouldn't send their kids to school for computer science. This storyline was largely BS. I would say 
close to 100% of our students found jobs. Most of those jobs were on Wall Street or in the financial sector outside of Wall Street. And because I had a startup experience and, you know, I was the faculty advisor to our, the ACM club and the, I was the coach of the programming team, I spent a lot of time at NYU uh, mentoring students. I sort of became a professor that the students would find if they wanted to do things outside of, uh, of banking. This is around the time that Andrew Montalenti, who introduced us, went through the NYU program. And he was one of the students that uh, I ended up getting close to during this time. I helped students here and there find jobs at startup companies or start their own companies. And then just, you know, a few things happened. In 2008, of course, the economy crashes. Wall Street jobs aren't necessarily a lifetime guaranteed job. A lot of people lost jobs. Technologists even lost jobs on Wall Street. Uh, 2010, the movie Social Network comes out, and it becomes acceptable to be an entrepreneur again, specifically a tech entrepreneur. And our enrollment, you know, had just ro hit rock bottom around 2008. It starts creeping back up. I think our enrollment went down something like 66% over those eight years. It's our third big peak in computer science, and this one is the biggest so far. We have more graduates than the, the advent of the PC and more graduates than the internet bubble. It seems like this is much more sustainable than it has been in the, in the past. But anyway, so... In 2010, like I said, it becomes acceptable to be an entrepreneur again. I've always had strong New York City politics. I wanted to be part of the group of people that helped build the New York City ecosystem. I got introduced, I should say, to a professor at Columbia who's thinking a lot about these same things. His name is Chris Wiggins. And we started uh, Hack and Why together. Basically, we threw a college hackathon. It was the first college hackathon, as far as we know, in April 2010. Uh, and then we started a summer fellowship program. We got the best hackers we could from around the country, brought them to uh, New York for the summer, put them up in NYU dorms. They interned at different startups during the day, and we had an educational program for them at night. Uh, the educational program taught them a lot about the New York City ecosystem. And believe it or not, in 2010, it was hard to learn about the New York City ecosystem. There wasn't much of an ecosystem. So we were one of the things that I think helped foster that. You know, it was great to have Mike Bloomberg as the mayor at the time. So he pushed a lot of issues that were very pro-New York City tech. So Hack and Why was, was one of those issues. We, we did get support from various VCs and the Kaufman Foundation. And, you know, now we just did our 11th summer. Uh, we're not doing the hackathons anymore. But we just did our 11th summer. It was our first remote summer. Uh, that was interesting. And we've had, you know, several hundred kids go through the program, and a lot of them are working in New York City Tech. Wow, that's fantastic. So this is kind of a magnet program to bring people from around the country in and, and supposedly, you know, presumably funnel them in and into, hey, why don't you come back when you graduate and work in, in New York City? Is that right? We certainly would like them to do that, but, uh, no, you know, some percentage of them do stay in New York. Yeah, that's fantastic. Hey, Developmenter fans, be sure to check out the new online series of conferences for Manning Publications called Live at Manning. As many of you know, Manning has been a longtime supporter of the show, offering up free books and discounts for our listeners. Now we're teaming up with them as a media sponsor to spread the word on this new conference series. These conferences are free to attend, filled with talks from some really great tech experts, and streamed globally via Twitch. No travel needed. 
Next up in the Live at Manning series is a one-day event focused on math and data science. It is on December 1st, starting at 12 p.m. Eastern. This is your chance to hear from speakers like Brian Godsey, Nicole Koningstein, Anlay, and many others. During this show, you'll be able to dive deep on math topics like principal component analysis, linear regression, and probabilistic modeling. Be sure to head over to developmentor.com slash manningmath, all one word, to find out more. In case you didn't catch that, there's a link in our show notes. We'll see you there. Well, and so then the the other one, the the Foundation for Computer Science Education, as I understand, is that targeted at high school? That's right. So this came out of some initiatives I was involved in. We started the Academy for Software Engineering. I think that was in 2012, which was a software engineering high school. So yes, that was uh, expanded to the Bronx Academy of Software Engineering. And we, we, we helped the city with a bunch of, uh, this is before we created the New York City Foundation for Computer Science Education. We helped the city launch a bunch of programs in the schools. And then when it became apparent that Mayor Bloomberg probably wouldn't change the law again so he could run for a fourth term, we decided we needed some infrastructure to continue these programs, which is what became CSNYC or the New York City Foundation for Computer Science Education. And uh, so we've worked very closely with the Department of Ed. The mission of that nonprofit is to get computer science into every school in the New York City public school system. So that's not just high schools. That's the full K-12 stack. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, you know, then your role with that, are you on the board? Or are you part of the management of that? What, what, is, what is your take on it these days? That's the opportunity that I took a leave from NYU to run. So I was the first executive director. I helped us get in our first hundred and something schools. I'd say now we're probably in more than half of the New York City schools, which is a big deal. New York City's school system is is a monstrous place. When I was running CSNYC, the budget for the school system, not for the city, was $24 billion a year, 1.1 million kids, 1,600 schools. So it was a big goal that we had, and you know it's going to take a while, but but I, I still think you know we, we gave ourselves 10 years to do it, and I think we'll come close. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you're helping with curriculum, you're helping with what they should, you know, what computers they should bring in, you're helping with, you know, all the educational materials. Is that right? I wouldn't say that uh, we were helping with that. We were helping making sure the private partnership got off the ground. The first year I went around to a bunch of CS education conferences and did my best to speak to everybody and try to identify some of the best programs. And then we funded them to do their work in New York City. That was a really fun year because there were so many brilliant people working on K-12 computer science education and meeting all of them and being able to help them work in the biggest school system in the world. Was, it, was, it was pure joy, but it, it felt a little like being a sports agent. Oh, so I get it now. So you, this was much more upstream. This was like the advocating just even to get into the schools uh, to begin with, uh, much less figuring out what to do once you're there. So that morphed into an $80 million private public partnership where we were responsible for raising a little over half of that. And the DOE put in the other half. And that was kind of to get it into the system and become part of the system. The, I sort of think of it as seed funding, you know, put this money in, get the programs up and running, and it becomes part of the thing that needs to be funded. 
Wow, oh, that's fantastic. What an experience, too. I can see why you would take off from that because, you know, it's not often in life you get to have those kinds of experiences. So you definitely got to jump at that opportunity. So, you know, these days, Evan, you seem primarily focused on two things. You know, of course, we've talked a lot about the uh, professorship side of it, the teaching, the love of teaching. But then you also have this consultancy called Tech Rock. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what Tech Rock is and then how these two go together. Sure. So Tech Rock is a corporation that has a bunch of incarnations for me. The last two incarnations are we've been helping companies with what I guess could best be classified as uh, technology employer branding. So you know, if you talk to 20 CTOs in New York City and ask them what their biggest challenges are right now, most of them would say recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. Well, that's not an area that I've ever really wanted to directly assess. But a few years ago, it occurred to me that we do most of our recruiting outbound. So, you know, we talk about inbound and outbound sales, but we in the recruiting world, I don't think they talk too much uh, about inbound recruiting. How do we attract people to companies? So we work with just a handful of companies. It's not something that I dedicate the majority of my time towards. We work with a handful of companies to figure out how to tell their story, how to get it out there of why this is a good place to work and what you'd be working on if you worked there. So think about launching tech blogs and hosting and speaking at the right events and lots of other internal things you can do to, to help with retention because obviously retention is even better than recruiting. So you don't have to do as much recruiting. What's one or two quick tips for our listeners and how they can be and help their company be more effective for recruiting? Well, again, I think it's it's about having the right culture inside. It's about having a diverse team. It's about telling the world what it's, you know, having an engineering blog where you have the the voices of your engineers telling the world what it's like to work in that organization. Yeah, it's amazing to me how many companies want to recruit in tech and then they don't have a blog that actually talks about <laughs> what their tech looks like. I mean, it's such an easy thing to do. I know most developers, you know, they go look for that kind of stuff because they want to know whether, you know, what they're going to be working on. What's the stack? What are the problems these companies are facing? So, yeah, I know that's fantastic. You know, Evan, I like to ask my guests this one question that kind of goes to something like this. Jobs and careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows. You know, you've been a professor for a while now. What's the best thing about being a professor? And what do you find, you know, challenging about being a professor? You know, outside of, you know, obviously the specifics at NYU, but from a more abstract sense. Right. So the best thing about being a professor is mentoring young people. If you brought up a bunch of parts of my career that all sound like it's a mishmash of different things. And if you really look at the the common theme through everything that I've done, it is about helping young technologists. Uh, That's what I really love to do. And that's what you get to do a lot of as a professor or in some of these other roles that I've, I've had the honor of, of fulfilling. Most teachers will tell you the worst part of teaching is grading. I'm sure students feel the same way. Nothing less fun than than having to go through a stack of final exams. 
you haven't trained a deep learning bot to do that for you yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not going to talk about that publicly. No, that's fantastic. I, I, I always imagine that there's days when I'm like, eh, maybe I'd like to do an adjunct. Uh, I, I like teaching as well, but then I'm always like, oh, the grade. <laughs> then you have a very good instinct for the job. I will also say that teaching remotely is not nearly as fulfilling as doing the in-person thing that, uh, unfortunately, myself and a lot of my colleagues had to discover in 2020. Yeah, for sure. Well, my son's a sophomore uh, down here at a, a university, and I know from his side it hasn't been great either. It's just, you know, such a mad scramble to get materials online, figure out the technology, uh, which is ironic. He's a computer science major as well, and and they still don't have all the tech down for actually doing it. But he's he's working his way through it. And, you know, I mean, I think uh, it'll be really interesting to me to see the entrepreneurs that come out of this. Uh, I imagine you probably see a lot of that too already. The ideas germinating for between you and your students as to how to build better tech in, in a remote first world. Yeah. And actually that is what my consulting is focused around right now. We've developed a remote maturity model which has six modules in it. And we're, we're trying to figure out how best to help companies become more mature at being remote first organizations. Oh, interesting. What's the taste of uh, one or two of those modules? Uh, tell me, tell me more. A very low to the ground practical one would be streamlined communications. You know, do you have good processes for ensuring that documentation is where it should be and everybody knows where it is and everybody knows how to improve it and a, a meeting strategy as well uh, and a communication strategy. Do you know how to communicate with everybody on your team? I'd say that's one that's really down to earth. And then another one is entitled North Star. And that's, you know, does your company have a North Star? Does everybody in the company know it so they can make wise decisions on their own? Do they have OKRs? that start at the you know start with the north star and trickle down to what everybody does on a day-to-day -day basis yeah especially when you're remote having that uh guiding light is so important right it's one thing when you're all in the office and you can kind of you know quote unquote drink the kool-aid together but when you when you're all remote it's so easy to lose sight of that that's exactly right grant evan you know Reflecting back here a little bit, and maybe you hinted at this already when you you know you found out you actually like teaching. But I'm curious, you know, what would 18 year old Evan be most surprised about in terms of your career to date? I think 18 year old Evan, or even 28 year old Evan, would have thought that I'd have a bunch of like miniature 10 year careers, and then uh, it looked like that was going to happen. I did a decade of sports agency. And then it looked like I'd do the same in technology, but I really liked it a lot and, and ended up sticking with it. Well, interesting. Was there some basis behind that? I'm curious. Uh... I just, I think like most people, I have a lot of interests and thought that uh, I would want to tickle a bunch of them in different sectors. It turns out what's great about technology is you can be involved in lots of different sectors without losing the technologist thread in your career. Yeah, that's so true. It reminds me of one of our early episodes with Adam Chire, who's the one of the co-creators of Siri, the uh, 
the voice assistant technology and he talks very succinctly about how he has these different chapters and you know each chapter is kind of a hey i want to pursue this thing and and one of the great things like you said with tech is it's always changing right so it may be finance this week or this this 10 years and it might be a startup for the next 10 years Speaking of that, you know, obviously 2020 is a little bit weird, but how do you see this role of being a professor in computer science changing in the coming years? Wow, that's an interesting question. I I do think there will be a larger uh, online component to teaching. I mean, there are some, you know, having been thrust into this world uh, with all the other universities in the world, we're learning some things actually work well. We're learning some things don't work well. I don't think I have any answers exactly, specifically what those changes will be, but they're they're certainly going to be changes. You know, I have students that are all over the world, so you can imagine the education can spread further and wider. On the other hand, there's clearly something missing from not being in the classroom. Yeah, for sure. Well, and somebody needs to solve the physics of time zones as well so that we can all be on together. (laughs) Final two questions for you here, Evan, and I'll let you get on with your day. You know, you spend a lot of time mentoring students and, and kind of teaching them computer science, but I'm sure also you spend some time teaching them what it's like to work in the real world. What's your best career advice for them? What do you, what do you try to instill in them as, hey, here's how you go be a, a working software engineer or a working product manager in the real world? I mean, it's probably a little bit cliche, but I am, you know, again, because technologists could work on so many different types of problems, you know, I, I try to get them to follow their passions and, and to do things that are really meaningful to them because, again, it's cliche, but, you know, if you do something you love, it, it's you want to work on it nonstop for a long time. Yeah, for sure. Well, and as you've illuminated earlier, you know, in tech, even that can change. And so you're still on a really solid foundation there. I uh, uh, very much appreciate you sharing that with you. Learning how to program a machine has opened the entire world to me. You know, I have had, I've discussed a bunch of them, so many great experiences professionally, and it all came down to having a computer science education. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's the same for me as well. And much like you, I've had the opportunity to travel the world, talk tech with people all around the world, share ideas, share programs. So uh, you couldn't be more spot on. Evan, I want to thank you so much for your time and joining me here. Final question, total softball for you. Where can our listeners best follow you, learn more from you, perhaps sign up for one of those classes in the future with you? I mean, really, I'm an old school guy. Just email ekorth at gmail.com and you'll get to me. That's fantastic. And for our listeners, we'll uh, be sure to put that in the show notes as well as link up uh, Evan's profile so that you can see what he's up to these days. Evan, thank you again so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Grant. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, 
please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.